Thanks so much. I want to welcome Professor Jesse Jenkins, who's a professor of energy systems engineering at Princeton University and the director of the Zero Lab at Princeton, which produced some of the best analysis of the IRA before and now after it has passed. So welcome, Jesse. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back with the SOSV crowd. I want to, I guess, start out just by asking the question of the moment, which is one year in, you know, how do you feel the IRA is going? Yeah, I think it's going pretty well. It's an interesting uh, point in time because we really are just at the point where money is starting to flow and the rules have really started to, you know, come into for, you know into crystallization. Um, I think a lot of folks think the law passes and then you know we're off to the races. But of course, uh, what the Inflation Reduction Act does is effectively puts clean energy on sale through a variety of tax credits, grants, loan guarantees, rebate programs, et cetera, and every one of those has to be implemented by a federal agency. Uh, the Treasury Department in particular is in charge of all of the tax credits, which is the bulk of the spending and probably impact of the legislation. So they've been working overtime, trying to get through a number of guidances or rulemakings to clarify how a number of the brand new tax credits are going to operate, things like hydrogen tax credits or sustainable fuel credits or other things, as well as all the kind of modifications of the existing credits. So like the wind and solar production tax credits have been around for decades, but the law substantially modifies them, tying in you know uh, prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements to claim the full credit, offering new bonus incentives for domestic content and uh, deployment in certain energy communities. So all those rules have to be written. Um, and they're starting to come out. You know, Every week, we, we see new ones coming out. And then if you go over to EPA or to the Department of Energy, which are in charge of a lot of the grant and loan programs, and once again, every one of those programs has to have rules written, they have to have an RFP, they have to get proposals in, and then they have to select the winners of those programs. And so once again, you know, every week there's a new announcement of a billion dollars for this and $10 billion for that. And, and we're starting to get to the phase where some of those grants are being awarded uh, and actually going out the door. And so you know, it's interesting. This first year is a lot about setting the stage. And really, I think the next three years is where we're really going to see like steel in the ground and the rubber meet the road. But what we are seeing is a lot of announced projects. And so that's where mm -hmm. we're starting to see the kind of leading indicators of where things are going um, is, you know, a huge number, tens of billions of dollars of announced investment in, you know, everything from wind and solar to uh, manufacturing facilities for batteries and EVs and wind and solar components to uh, hydrogen production facilities, carbon capture pipelines, et cetera. And so, you know, if the goal of the bill was to, you know, kind of put Uncle, Sam, uh, Uncle uh, Sam's thumb on the scale on the side of the clean investments and purchase decisions, it seems like that's what's happening. And we're seeing that response from the private sector um, and from consumers, you know, adopting electric vehicles and, and things like that. I want to ask, uh, go back to this idea of clean energy on sale in a second um, after a few more questions. But I, I think let's start by asking like, well, what of that whole mix do you feel like is working best right now? Yeah, I'd say um, I'm, you know, the the electric vehicle transition seems to be moving at, you know, at or uh, faster than the pace that we were projecting or, or expecting to see. Um, you know, with a pretty strong commitment from the whole industry now to, you know, to transition. I think the writing's on the wall, both globally and in the United States now that, you know, by 2030, the majority of vehicles sold are going to be electric in the U.S. And, and over the majority globally, we're already about a fifth of all vehicles sold um, throughout the world are electric now or, or plug-in. Um, and so, you know, these auto automakers are finally realizing in some cases reluctantly, but in other cases more proactively that like, this is where the future and they need to be investing heavily to make that transition. 
uh, and consumers are starting to really, you know, the adoption rate is, is going up. And I think there's lots of, um, you know, there's there's lots of hand wringing initially about whether there'd be enough EVs and the supply chain, you know, coming online. Now we're seeing that the supply chain is developed, and you know, auto uh, manufacturers are kind of hitting their production run rates. And now there's hand wringing about be there being too many vehicles on the dealer lots. And that's <laughs> like which which is it? But you know, this is a big transition, and it's it's picking up steam. Uh, I think we're seeing that in the numbers on a regular basis. The other areas that we're seeing is a huge response on the manufacturing side. Um, so one of the things that IRA is trying to do, in addition to making clean energy just the smart financial decision for businesses and households, is to drive much more production of critical supply chains in the United States or in allied countries. Um, that's to build resilience, but also to create jobs and build the political durability of the legislation, I think, and the clean energy transition more broadly. And so there we're seeing huge you know, announcements as well. Every week, it's like a new, new manufacturing facility for wind components or solar panels or cells or EV batteries or, or assembly. Um, and those are spread across a good chunk of the country, too. And so there's you know, quite a diversity in the locations that are benefiting there. Um, it looks like solar PV deployment is on track to double the previous record deployment rate in the in both this year that's and next year in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. So that's okay. really because I feel like because I feel like up to now we haven't had a great sense of how this is going to trickle into the electricity sector. Yeah, that's right. So we saw about 20 gigawatts of deployment uh, in 2022 um, of, <laughs> of, of solar PV. I think the EIA is now projecting close to 40 gigawatts per year this year and next year. So that's great. I mean, that's sort of exceeding the pace that we were expecting from our modeling of, of the Inflation Reduction Act. The, the flip side of that is that wind is only going at about half of the peak rate that we've seen historically. So mm. we had hit about 15 gigawatts in 2020, I believe, of wind deployment. Um, that was right as the production tax credit was sort of winding down. And it, unlike the solar credit, the investment tax credit, the PTC for wind actually fully expired. And so I think we kind of cleared out the whole pipeline of projects. And we're still rebuilding that now in response to the new policy environment. That plus headwinds around supply chains and siting means that the EIA is projecting only about six or seven gigawatts a year uh, over this year and, and probably next year as well. And so that's, you know, wind is lagging behind, solar is running ahead and, and that, you know, maybe on net we're, we're running about right in terms of new clean electricity supply. You, you kind of anticipated my next question, but let me just like skip over, you know, what are you nervous about and kind of ask... Um, how much of that wind slowed? I mean, you kind of just explained it with the with the wind tax credit expiring, but how much of the wind tepidness we're seeing is from um, you know policy factors, and how much of it is from uh, this these troubles that the offshore wind companies are having? Like, and, and even in your projections, were you thinking most of our near term wind capacity was going to be onshore or offshore? Just like what was the mix? Yeah, we expect most of it to be onshore still. Uh, offshore projects are, you know, gathering steam in response to state uh, mandates and incentives are all up and down the eastern seaboard now. Um, but really, if you look at what, what's just sort of the most economic, I mean, offshore wind is still quite a lot more expensive than onshore. Um, and yeah. so really, we're, you know, we're seeing that driven by these state policy commitments to try to build these industries up from scratch. You know, until that's established that this is going to be, you know, it's it's going to be fairly expensive to build offshore in the U.S. Um, we have to build whole new, you know, offshore service industries and supply chains uh, to support those industries. The onshore sector is, you know, has been around for a long time. And, and, and again, it's gone through booms and busts as the PTC has expired and been extended. Um, you know, I think there is an impact of the fact that we had a full expiration and the supply chain, I mean, the pipeline kind of uh, was emptied and now has to be rebuilt. But I don't think that's all of it. If you look at 
we, we saw inflation and real cost increases in you know real dollar terms in wind, solar, and lithium-ion batteries in 2021 and 2022 for the first time ever, really, since we sort of, you know, we have these sort of consistent downward cost trajectories for those technologies, and they, they reversed themselves a little bit in 2022. Already, we're seeing that for batteries and solar, costs are back down again below the 2019 levels and 2021 levels. And so they're kind of back on trend, but that's not true for wind. We're still seeing, you know, price elevation, you know, from inflation and limited supply chain, you know, redevelopment in the, in the wind sector. And it's not clear how much longer that's going to persist. Um, you know, the wind manufacturers were all losing money even before inflation. And so they can't right. really absorb a lot of that. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a little worried that you know sort of a combination of the the greater challenges of siting wind farms, given just how much more visible they are, uh, their reliance on transmission, which they tend to rely on much longer distance lines than solar does on average, um, and these sort of supply chain you know challenges mean that we, we may have, you know, the wind run rate may be a little lower than would be ideal, or that we would sort of see in an economic optimization. How much? I mean, we, you 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 mentioned that one of the ideas of the IRA is to put clean energy on sale. Um, how much is the rate environment affecting any of these deployments? It, it, you know, it doesn't yeah. seem to be affecting it in EVs. Let's say, if I could editorialize, like it from what I can tell, the EV deployments happening, you know, on roughly the rate I think on on actually an even better rate than one would expect. But in, in renewables, I've heard it's starting to bite. So are we starting to see that? Is that a reason yeah. to be concerned? It's, it is a reason in general to be concerned. I mean, we, in the sense that all the, almost everything we're talking about, whether it's a, if a heat pump or an EV or a wind or solar farm, is replacing capital for fuel cost, right? We build mm -hmm. a wind farm or a solar farm. It's all upfront capital investment. And then over its life, it displaces a bunch of natural gas or coal-fired power that we would have otherwise needed, and it delivers its savings that way. You know, same with an EV, right? It costs a little more upfront to buy, although the tax credits help knock that down. And and then over the life of your you know ownership, it's like costs about half as much to you know fuel and maintain as a conventional vehicle. Same thing for a heat pump, you know, to, or efficiency upgrades at your home. And so to the degree that those are all, you know, most of that is financed upfront. You know, having interest rates at seven percent as opposed to two percent really does make a pretty significant difference in the relative cost, and and you don't see that. I mean, you see its own volatility in the fuel markets, right? Have gone, have gone way up. You know, after the the war in Ukraine began, and um, are still yeah. elevated relative to that level, but in North America have come quite a ways back down. Um, but it's sort of a different cycle, right? Than than we see those commodity booms and busts are a little different than what we see for the rate environment. The rate environment tends to persist longer, and and hopefully will come back down again in you know a little while. But uh, for now, it's made all those investments relatively more expensive, and so it's a good thing that we just knocked you know twenty, thirty, forty percent off the cost of these projects because that does help absorb some of that uh, that inflation that um, interest rate increase. I I have been wondering if we if they basically are now coming out even. I mean, that's a good question. I, I'd have to go do the math on that. I don't think so. I think that the the inflation yeah. increase is, is lower than the or the interest rate increase is less than the the incentive value. But uh, I'd have to go do the math on that. That's that's a good question. Um, what don't we know yet? So what I don't think we know is how well we're going to be able to build out the kind of enabling infrastructure that maybe isn't directly supported by IRA. Um, but yeah. you know, is induced demand this is like transmission, um, so transmission CO two pipelines, hydrogen networks. You know, we don't need you know inter you know interstate 
hydrogen pipelines necessarily, especially not in the near term. But we are going to need to build some industrial clusters that can, you know, harness hydrogen at scale to make cost of production or cost of transport much lower. Um, all of that is sort of indirectly supported by the incentives to produce the fuels and clean electricity or, or do carbon capture and storage, um, but less, much less direct support. We had a little bit of funding in the infrastructure law for, for transmission lines and for CO2 pipelines, you know, these hydrogen hubs uh, demonstration programs. But that's all, you know, a few billion dollars that will will run out pretty quickly. Right. It doesn't doesn't take more than a couple transmission lines before you've spent you know a couple billion dollars. So. Um, those are helpful to get a few initial projects moving, but they're not a you know, substantial direct support. And the other thing that is a limitation of the Inflation Reduction Act is that because it was passed as a Budget Reconciliation Act, it's all about spending money or raising revenue. That you can do a lot with, right? You can create a lot of carrots and, 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 and or sticks with that kind of program. But what it can't do is establish new institutions or state capacity for planning, for coordination, you know, for, for all the things that we probably need to make these sort of network economies of scale and all the coordination that goes with that work out at the kind of, you know, the, the efficiency and, and pace that we would ideally see. So I'm a little worried about that. Like, you know, we can have our faith in the private market to respond. But I think the reality is that if you look at all other network infrastructure, whether it's, you know, fiber optic or um, or transmission, you know, original electrification and transmission lines of the federal highways or railroads, there's always been a pretty direct role for the federal government in accelerating and coordinating the development of that network infrastructure. And we don't really have that right now, um, really, for either for any of those sectors. Right. I mean. And so that's one area where I think I'm concerned and we probably need further legislation, further state, um, you know, further state capacity development, whether that's at the federal level or kind of a public private, you know, uh, consortia, Mm -hmm. regional scale that could could help guide this process. I I think that's an an important area for concern. It's funny because I think that in the climate world, we got very used to for literally you know, 20 years, 30 years, talking about how the Senate was the obstacle to passing uh, climate policy and like federal climate policy in the United States. And then, of course, like the Senate is where a lot of these ideas came from. It passed IRA before the House did. It was um, where the final deal was struck over the IRA. And yet we're still running into all these institutional constraints of the Senate, because if it wasn't for the Senate and the reconciliation measures, we would be able to do you know, the policymakers would have been able to be much more creative with the legislation. Yeah. It's that they're limited to these revenue measures. And it just always tracks back in yeah. some ways the US to <laughs> how the Senate works. Where good ideas yeah. go to die, as they say. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, there's so much in the IRA that touches on the innovation economy and, and how the U.S. handles its innovation pipeline. And in some ways, the IRA feels like the second part. I remember us talking about this in 2022 before it passed, but it's like the second half of a lot of ideas that kind of started off in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So just what's that whole set of changes to the kind of U.S. innovation pipeline and where do they stand now? Yeah. So I'd say the first thing we should recognize is sort of why we're able to go hard and, you know, big on wind and solar and EVs now. Like, why are those the technologies we're talking about so much? And and the reason is because 15, 20 years ago, when they were nascent industries that were these sort of expensive alternative energy technologies, as we call them then, 
um, governments around the world, from the U.S. to states, you know, uh, in the U.S. to Germany, Japan, you know, Italy, et cetera, decided to create early niche markets to deploy those technologies at scale, whether that was Germany's energy vendor and uh, feed-in tariffs or our, you know, renewable portfolio standards in the U.S. or Denmark's support for commercial wind, et cetera. Um, all of that created initial markets to deploy these technologies at commercial scale, which drives these sort of feedback loops that, um, that you know, of all these sorts of causal factors that um, get reduced down to what we call experience curves or learning curves, right? This sort of correlation that we consistently observe for many technologies where the more you deploy of it, the more cumulative deployment you have, the cheaper the technology gets on a fairly regular timeline, right? A fairly regular ratio. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a bunch of stuff that actually, you know, is behind that. It kind of shifts, the causal factors shift over time. But what's interesting about it is the recognition that you have to build at scale to kick those things off, right? Yeah. To drive innovation and production at scale, to drive learning by doing and installations and efficiency of labor productivity, all the kinds of things that you learn as you do more and more of it and you have competitive pressures to get cheaper than your competitor in the market, right? That doesn't happen if there isn't a market. Um, and induced demand for more R&D, right? And, and whether that's publicly funded or privately funded, that R&D doesn't have anywhere to go and be deployed and tested if there isn't a market for these technologies. And so what that says is we need kind of a full pipeline of support from, yes, early R&D, which has traditionally been the role of government to subsidize basic knowledge and science, but all the way down through demonstration and first-of-a-kind projects, first-end-of-a-kind projects, and then ultimately commercial-scale deployment of these technologies. Um, and so we're at that commercial-scale phase for wind and solar and EVs and lithium-ion batteries only because we did the other stuff earlier. Uh, and now we have to basically repeat that kind of full pipeline for all the rest of the solutions we need in the clean energy portfolio, whether that's clean, firm power or long duration battery storage technologies or energy storage that we need to kind of complete the transition to 100% carbon free electricity and complement wind and solar. Again, all those technologies are, you know, we know what they are, but they're they're nascent, whether that's you know, natural gas with carbon capture or advanced geothermal or advanced nuclear or hydrogen, you know, fuel cells or turbines, like all of those are you know, we know how to build them, um, but we have to get a lot better and cheaper at it. We have to make those mature industries that scale. Um, industrial decarbonization strategies, you know, synthetic liquid fuels, um, you know, all the sort of additional uh, suite of technologies, carbon capture, you know, hydrogen. And fortunately, the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law really contain a pretty comprehensive suite of innovation policies to support expanded R&D, demonstration hubs and and demo programs for the new Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, loan program office authority, which was dramatically expanded to sort of underwrite the early first end-of-a-kind deployments of these technologies. Mm -hmm. And then for many of them, the first commercial-scale deployment subsidies we've had, whether that's advanced nuclear, which now qualifies on equal footing with all other carbon-free generation for the full wind and solar production tax credits, you know, the same uh, production tax credit that wind and solar have had, or the new hydrogen production tax credit or an expanded 45Q subsidy for carbon capture and storage. We really have the kind of full uh, suite there for most of the technologies we need. I would say with maybe the exception of a broader focus on industrial decarbonization and agriculture, which are kind of have some initial levels of funding, but are largely left um, incomplete in, in the current legislation. It's funny, that feels like the biggest change in many ways between what you might call like Obamanomics and especially the kind of, you know, Recovery Act of 2009 and and just the thinking that went into that law and all the green investment that it fostered. And now, you know, the the Biden set of legislation is, I feel like there was a lot, you know, 10 years ago, there was a, we thought we could do a lot by being smart. 
and like having a better technology, like a raw technology than other, than other countries or other companies. And now it feels like the U S has recognized in large part due to China, frankly, right. Um, the importance of scale yeah. and that, uh, you know, VHS beats Betamax yeah. any day, as Jigger Shaw would tell us. Yep. Uh, and it just matters whether you scale or not. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable that, I mean, I w- was making the case in 2009, 2010, 2012, <laughs> that we should be, you know, doing something like IRA then. It was interesting, I mean, the men- mentality in, in the Recovery Act, which made, you know, 90 billion plus investment over a few years in, in the clean economy, the biggest to date, was that this was a temporary intervention, right? It was about economic stimulus. Mm-hmm. It was about shovel-ready projects. Yeah, there was some case to be made that it was a down payment on further, you know, clean energy investment. But that that you know the the mortgage never got paid on the down payment, right? And and in contrast, China used that same time period to implement a very robust industrial policy strategy to basically dominate over the next five years wind, solar, and batteries, right? Uh, And and now we're in this world where they control a huge portion of the critical minerals and the manufacturing capability and the, you know, the the machine tooling and all the kind of components that go with those industries. Again, not like, not because there's some inherent natural advantage in China, but because they made a conscious choice to make that a strategic priority of the government and therefore of the industry. Uh, to mm-hmm. perfect these technologies, to scale them up and to drive them down in cost and to get really good at manufacturing them. We could have done the same thing, you know, a, a decade ago. So we're now a decade behind, uh, but at least we're finally in the race and we have the kind of robust mm-hmm. industrial strategy that we we need to be able to compete on the global stage. It's funny, even the phrase shovel-ready projects like conveys a certain approach to, which I remember from the time, just conveys a certain approach to like how you do infrastructure investment and like how you do societal capacity, which is like, well, is it, is it ready to go? Because if not, we're not interested in investing in it. Yeah. Um, It's just so different, I think, from, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, For this crowd, especially, you know, what, uh, what has not yet been invested in? And we could talk about that from the policy level or from like, the you know technologies that the IRA would support if they existed, but that right now don't you know don't have firms ready to provide. Yeah. yeah, I think that the two areas that seem most underdeveloped, both in the kind of technology suite and 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 in the policy realm, are industry and agriculture. So if you look at the you know the the pie chart of U.S. emissions, right, we have the big ones are transportation, uh, power, and industry. Buildings is a smaller one if you only count direct combustion of fuels in the buildings, but if you count all of the electricity that goes into them, it becomes the biggest wedge. So it depends on how you're thinking about that. Um, and then you have agriculture, which is about 10 percent, 10 or 11 percent of our emissions. Um, and so, you know, we if we're going to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions across the whole economy, we have to hit all of those wedges. And I would say if you score IRA on each of them, right, it does pretty darn well on transportation. Right. Again, not just consumer EVs, but there's new business tax credits for medium and heavy duty uh, electric or fuel cell vehicles that I think are going to have a huge impact um, because businesses are actually much more price responsive and rational than consumer purchase decisions around cars. Right. So if they can save money and you know get a competitive advantage by you know adopting an EV delivery van like uh, it's you know Amazon has running around my neighborhood now, that's going to happen fast, I think, because they have a sustained cost advantage there now. Um, so anyway, there, you know, transportation, I think, is in pretty good shape. Um, I think uh, power certainly has a big chunk of the em- emphasis from the legislation, right? And we know we can cut emissions faster and deeper in that sector than really any other, and that it has to grow and expand to help electrify everything else, 
So that's that's critical. Um, and then uh, we have a, a decent amount of support for building electrification and efficiency in the bill as well. Although I should say, I think some of the consumer facing credits in that case are a little underpowered. Like you can get a $2,000 tax credit to install a heat pump. But if the heat pump install costs twenty grand or twenty five grand, you know, which is what a whole home, you know, system might might cost these days, it's not a huge incentive. To, you know, it's not likely to make a determinative difference for a lot of people. So we maybe could do more in buildings to think about how to do that, or how to couple those incentives with good standard setting and building codes, so that you know the first time you build something or the first time you go to replace an appliance, you just have efficient options are the only options available. Um, yeah, that often is the most you know, effective way to get that turnover going quickly and then to, to buy down the upfront cost of that with these rebates and subsidies. But the ones that are really lacking are in industry and ag. We have a little bit of money for industrial uh, demonstrations, decarbonization demonstrations, about $6 billion in, the, uh, in IRA that goes throughout, out through the DOE's Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. And that might be able to help fund some you know, creative demonstrations, whether that's, you know, industrial electrification or, uh, you know, smarter energy efficiency improvements or ways to change out processes or, or material inputs that can reduce emissions. Um, the 48C advanced manufacturing credit, tax credit, which is supposed to sort of support investments in clean energy manufacturing, actually got modified so that energy efficiency improvements that save on emissions at industrial facilities can also count for that. But that's one of the only credits that's capped at a, at a fixed value. You can only have $10 billion in expenditure on that credit before it, 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 it's, um, it's used up, whereas most of them are uncapped. So that's you know, enough to fund maybe $20 billion of public investment. Maybe that makes it something like 30 uh, uh, or so in, in total um, you know, public and private investment. That can get us going, but there's no long-term you know, industrial decarbonization policy driver, right? We don't have any clear incentive for that um, yet. Uh, and then on agriculture, there were some grants in the bill for you know wildlife or wildfire mitigation that can help preserve forest stocks for some creative uh, agricultural uh, conservation programs that might improve soil carbon and things like that. Um, but again, that's that's it. There's some limited grant programs, really no broader agricultural decarbonization strategy that you can see in the legislation. And I think that's partly a lack of mature technologies that you can point to and say, yeah, that one, let's get that one going. You know, where, where you can say that in the case of hydrogen and carbon capture, which I, you know, I guess can play a big role in industry. We did do that, right? We, we gave very specific subsidies for them. So might be a lack of mature technologies, but also I, I do think, you know, for us policy wonks, it's a lack of thoughtful policy development. There wasn't a very clear mm -hmm policy manual, you know, rate, rate rating to be inserted into IRA for those sectors the way there was for transportation and buildings and, and power. And so I think we have our work to do to, to think very carefully about what, um, what a smart innovation strategy looks like, what a smart policy strategy looks like, and what the full suite of technological or behavioral solutions are uh, to tackle those sectors. It is always funny because you do realize at this point, I've been covering climate since 2015, which is not as long as you've been in climate, but you do realize how much um, policy runs slightly ahead of need, but only slightly ahead of need. Yeah. Like when I came, it felt like most people were in power. Transportation had just become the biggest emitting sector of the economy. And since then, there's been more and more focus on transportation. You know, industry, I think, is getting close to being the biggest emitting sector of the economy. Yep. And now it feels like people are starting to pay attention to industry. But it's like 
it, it has a uh, six-year-old's falling around a soccer ball feel um, more than I think people expect who are not <laughs> kind of in, in the topic yeah. all the time. Um, uh, that being said, this has been a great conversation and I want to thank our host SOSB for having us, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. So thank you so much, Jesse, and we'll send it back to you.